So let's get started. I'm yeah. tired. How yeah, long yeah. Are we gonna go? How long does this go? Well, I usually do a two-hour show. If you don't want to do that long, that's totally fine. I really don't care. We'll just go until you're tired or we're done or either. Okay. I don't want to force anybody into anything. I used to tell people two hours and some people go, sure. And the others would go, well, so now I'm just like, if you can give me at least an hour, that's cool. So I haven't listened to any of the other interviews about this. I don't want to be contaminated by them. I may repeat questions that you've got. That's okay. You know, that's okay. I'll answer them differently. Okay. And I want I mean, to tr- not, not like say, uh, no, I didn't when I previously said, <laughs> yes, I did. Well, that'd be great because everybody would come listen to my show just to figure out why you had contradicted yourself. No, the, the whole extraterrestrial thing is not, uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, well conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? accurate enough to you. Whitley Strieber has just completed his latest book in the Visitor Saga entitled A New World. It's an autobiography, an overview, and a how-to of contact with what he perceives as extra human beings that he has been experiencing for over 30 years. 
In about 200 pages, he describes his relationship with the visitors, how it has changed radically, especially in the last few months, and points a way forward for a real sort of communion with this intelligence that he says has been with us for perhaps our entire history on this planet. He also offers some theories as to their motivations, their view of reality, and how this is starting to mesh with some of the latest speculative and not-so-speculative theories in science. Throughout, he stresses that this book was written at the behest of the visitors and their wish that a new sort of contact may be established with more of us in the coming years and how almost anyone might develop this relationship. Accurate enough? (laughs) Yeah, it sounds exactly right. Oh, okay, good. Then I understood the book as as well as you, I think you wanted to uh, communicate it, but that's what good writers can do. They... Uh, Jack London, uh, I think he said, good writing is clear thinking written out. And uh, you certainly do that. So it's uh, it's always a pleasure to read. You were talking about this book, I think at the end of last year, the beginning of this, and you said that um, you had a, an assignment to finish it. Is that how the inspiration came for uh, New World? Or was it assigned to you? Or is it something you were thinking about for a while? No, it wasn't exactly assigned to me. What happened was this. In February of 2016, by February of 2016, I had had more experience with the visitors in the previous seven or eight months than I had had in my in the entire time since 1987. Mm-hmm. And I was really wanting them to do more. In other words, if they could validate their existence, they could in five minutes or 10 minutes change this world Mm -hmm. much for the better because their message to the close encounter witnesses is clear. Your world's in trouble. You need to really concentrate on your environment. You're going to lose your planet. That's their message. And I think it's a really important message. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I would uh, say to them, I am not scared anymore. The past months have taken that out of me. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not scared, I'm at least a beginning. And if you could just show yourselves for five minutes, then I can explain to people why I'm not scared. Because this fear is, it's not normal fear. This is not just, oh God, this is what a weird looking little creature. It's fear of ego death is what I think of it as. And that's a big fear because it's, it's more intense than the fear of, of natural physical death itself. It's like the death of the whole person. And that's not something we're ever supposed to even experience. Mm -hmm. So naturally i was I, I felt like i had was beyond that and the result of this was there was a few nights later a fight occurred <laughs> i don't see them physically often at all i they manifest themselves in all kinds of different physical ways and blowing on me or touching me or sometimes in a in a very sweet way and sometimes in not such a sweet way. Right. But they, they do that. And then they, uh, they will disappear for a while. And sometimes just very brief physical encounters, but not many. And the, 
the protracted ones were basically all right at the beginning. So I wake up in the middle of the night in an apartment. I live alone. It's all locked up. I have no pets. I have, there's no way any animal could get in here. We have no rats. So I, and there's something between my legs and I think to myself, okay, (laughs) is there something between your legs? (laughs) And I, I lie there and as if on cue, what feels very much like little thin claw tipped fingers begin to sort of touch toward my genitals and you know just very lightly and i think okay i'm thinking a little harder now Uh, that is that real that's real yep you're definitely having somebody's touching your balls and i (laughs) leap out of the bed the this dark shape leaps out of the bed and is shoots out through the ceiling in a in an instant I feel as it is, I'm leaping out of the bed. I feel a, 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 some, a scratch, something scratching me. And then I have a big, nasty scratch on my left calf. I took pictures of it and I sent infer- the story to friends mm-hmm. uh, who, who I have an email list with so that there would be a record of this event. It took it about a year to heal. And so, but that was to, to, to illustrate to me and they don't talk. They never, they've said two words in my life that I remember. I think I remember hearing aloud, which were have joy, which became my wife's life motto. Mm -hmm. In any case, I think to myself then, well, obviously I can still be scared, because what they've done is they've done something that no normal male is going to be able to handle. I'm not going to be able to handle a little figure between my legs touching my balls with thin, clawed fingers. <laughs> it just isn't going to happen. Yeah. So, you know, point made. Now what do we do? And I thought, well, you know, they've made their point. And what proceeded to happen then was the implant had already been really intensely activated and yeah we'll talk about that a bit you will talk about that in a bit yeah and i i began to have lots and lots of ideas about the book and i wrote like crazy i i just overdid everything (laughs) and i wrote this hundred and twenty five thousand word book oh wow in about six weeks and it's insane and i sent it out to some friends thinking, oh my God, I mean, I've used the implant, the visitors have helped me, and this is, must be just the absolute cat's pajamas. And the friends were kind of quiet. <laughs> and I thought, well, they're reading. And they stayed quiet. And finally, <laughs> you had to ask. Um, I, I said to somebody, uh, do you not like the draft? And he, his response was, let me tell you why. so it started there my dear friend josh boone the film director read no fewer than seven drafts oh wow 
as we went slowly down from 125,000 words to about 60,000 words, which is where we are now. And it's a solid book. It's intended. They wanted it to be able to be read in a day. They wanted people to be able to read it quickly because they are well aware of the changes in our attention spans. Yeah. They wanted it to be realistic and accurate, but comprehensible. And it is realistic and accurate, and perhaps it's also comprehensible. I'm not really sure. But, but It was to me, except for a couple things, which I will discuss with you. Yeah, great. You want to discuss them now? or No, you, I, I don't want to uh, get in, in the way of your narrative. Please continue. But yeah, because I have notes. Well, I have extensive that, well, that notes was here. how it all started. Mm-hmm. And then, then what? The, the, a pattern developed, which is I would work during the day. I would have the the setting meditation, the, the 11 p.m. meditation, which is the meditation at the, the end of the day, and then the rising meditation, which is pre-dawn, is usually about 3 a.m., 4 a.m. for me. Mm-hmm. And in the rising meditation, all of the ideas that have been floating around and gathered during the day and kind of fixed in your mind in the setting meditation come back to the surface. And you you that's when you get your inspiration. Right. And so that was the pattern and that's how it worked. And then the next, then I would go to sleep and then next morning I would be ready to do the next period, period of writing. And it was primarily about insights about two things. One, the fact that they communicate completely differently from us in part because they are different. In other words, they don't have they don't have evolved language or anything like that. That's number one. Number two, they think differently. We think in the book, I describe it as an output strategy where, you know, when you look at around you and you're, you're, you, you want an apple that you know to be in the, in the house and you see it in a bowl, you pick it up and eat it and it's an apple. You have no problem. Yeah, this was one of my questions, so yeah, please go ahead. Okay, well, they, they don't really think that way. I don't think. And I think they are not really in that space. In, when they are physical, they're not in need of physical subs, substance. In other words, sustenance. Right. They're not primarily physical beings. They can project themselves into this, but that, that's not where they are. And they have, therefore, no need for an output strategy, and their strategy is an input strategy. They begin with the mathematics of reality and then go from there. We, we begin with the outcome of those mathematics, which is the apple. They, they, they understand the, 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 the core truth of it in terms of its, its absolute reality in the, in the universe. Mm-hmm. We understand its presence insofar as it is useful to us to sustain our bodies. Right. Yeah. Cause we're physical and incarnate and need to do, right. do it that and, way and, or we and die. They are, yeah. they are projections when they're in the physical, they're not incarnate. Mm-hmm. You started describing this implant to me sometime early this year and it sounded fascinating. And it, you almost, I kind of almost wish that, uh, that people that write could have this kind of instrument. But you came to it in a very strange way. And maybe you could tell a story about, one, how it uh, was apparently placed in your body. And two, you found out recently who installed it um, and its origins and functionality. Yes. 
Well, I had figured out some of its functionality, but let's go back to the beginning when yeah. it was installed. <laughs> it was installed. I was wide awake, first of all, during this pr procedure. It was not something that happened to me in my sleep or in an altered state at all. And what it what happened was this. I was lying in bed in our country house in upstate New York at about 11 o'clock at night on a night in uh, May of 1989. The windows were open because it was a warm evening. Mm -hmm. And I um, heard the crunching of gravel in the driveway. It was a gravel driveway. And I thought, uh oh, not good because that's a car, yeah. clearly. Yeah. And we had a big gate, so therefore the car had gotten past that gate double not good hmm. and the car show was showing no lights very very bad indeed so my initial thought go for your your switches that turn on all the lights on the outside of the house i had the i had switches beside the bed which you could flip them all and floodlights would completely flood the area as you may imagine, I was, had been fairly concerned about the visitors coming and showing up in the middle of the night. And, um, yeah, one of the first thing you think of is lights and then maybe right. other things and like I had also a defense. shotgun under the bed and a yeah. pistol. I'm a Texan. And so I'm naturally my first impulse when feeling uneasy is to gun up. <laughs> and so I, I had all of that stuff. And right. at that point in time, I was actually not concerned about the visitors anymore. In other words, they were not the reason for the lights and the guns. The possibility that crazy people would come back in there in the night, that was my concern. Mm -hmm. Because the book, by that time, the book was huge. I was a, a very disturbing and creepy household name to most people. <laughs> and I, I thought, I would think to myself, some un- hinged soul is liable to show up here in the middle of the night. So that's what that was all about. It was not about the visitors. And so I thought naturally the unhinged soul has arrived and I flipped, tried to started to flip on the lights. But as I turned, I saw a man and a woman standing at, in the doorway at the foot of the bed. Now this was very upsetting. You can imagine. And there, there was an alarm system, and I could see that the red LED was still on, so therefore they were in the house, and the alarm system had not been tripped. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine all of, speaking of alarms, that were flashing in my mind at that time. And forget the lights, I began to go for the shotgun. And the next thing I knew, I was on my side. The woman's voice was speaking gently. I couldn't move an inch. I couldn't see a thing. And then there came waves of pressure down onto my left ear. I was on my right side. And then that ended. The, there was a big flash of light, a lot of crashing in the woods. I jumped up out of bed, grabbed the pistol, and ran off into the house trying to find these people. Mm-hmm. I went through the entire house. There was no, no window or door breach anywhere. 
I went through the basement. I went through the attic. They were not there, and the alarm was still red. So I sat on the bedside for a while and thought to myself, perhaps this is what they call a lucid dream, because I can't understand why the alarm system is on. There's no doors open or anything. Yeah. And it didn't go off when you ran out of the house, too? No, I didn't go out of the house. I ran only inside the house. Oh, I see, I see. I nef- I've never left the house. Yeah, you didn't breach the uh, perimeter. No, okay. no, I didn't breach. Oh, no. I, I was dream, lucid dream or whatever it was. There was no way I was going outside. <laughs> Basically, yeah. gun or not. Yeah. Because. Yeah, because then you're, you know, you're not defensible. You're just, just standing just out there. Happen. Yeah. So um, I went, I sat on the bed for a while, and Annie was peacefully asleep the whole time. My son was asleep in the, uh, another room. Everything was peaceful. I finally lay down and sort of half slept for the rest of the night. Not very, very light sleep. And when I got up, I got dressed and showered and went out to get the paper. And to do that, I had to drive to a little uh, news and um, stand and little store about a mile or mile and a half away. Right. And... When I opened the garage door, the door into the garage, which I had not opened during the night, I hadn't thought to, I hadn't checked the interior of the garage. To my astonishment, the garage door, the big door into the garage was wide open. Hmm. Even though the alarm system before my eyes was still red, it was still armed. So... I immediately called the alarm man and he came over a while later and he said, Mr. Strieber, there's a big magnetic field hanging around this door that, that it's so strong that the, and he showed me with his magnetometer, the uh, switch is not being tripped even though they're a foot and a half apart, the two switches. And he said, that's what it is. And he said, but there's nothing in my switches that could, produce a magnetic field this strong he said the only thing i can think of is we just have to change these magnets out and um that's what he did and it worked fine after that Hmm. but what the hell had happened i and then later that day my ear began to hurt and i felt it up there and i felt a little bump in it and that's the beginning of the implant story there followed a long saga, which... Uh, some of it's in the book. Some of it's in the book, and it's in other books, too. It's mm-hmm. The whole saga is in my body of work. But right. there's enough in A New World where you don't need to read the other books to find out enough details. Right, right. The functionality of it, I think, has not been described up until this book, though. This is, yeah, because this is the functionality... Interestingly enough, did not really start to coalesce until after Annie died. This this whole experience has a huge amount to do with the dead. And right. whoever yeah. the visitors are, whether they are aliens or some other version of us or something we haven't even articulated yet, one thing is very clear. They and our dead or living in the and conscious and being in the same space. And, you know, when the scientists say, well, there are no dead, in my experience, that's wrong. There are. There, are, the, the, there is consciousness after death, coherent, individualized consciousness after death. And that's, I can't 
prove that in a satisfactory way to someone who is adhering to the scientific method. But I can only describe my own life experiences, which I did in Afterlife Revolution. Mm -hmm. But in any case, it was early on. It was like October of 2015. I began to I began to want to write a novel, which was a foolish thing to do because no self-respecting publisher would publish Whitley Strieber at any level, a novel or not, and certainly not. <laughs> so anyway, I decided to write a historical novel about Hitler, yes. which is, you know, I, I might as well have just dug my grave and buried myself. <laughs> there was just absolutely no chance for this book. One, <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, publisher of one publishing house even sent a memo around when the manuscript arrived saying, that uh, anybody who gets on the Whitley Strieber train is fired. Consider yourself fired. Any any editor who buys Whitley Strieber is fired. So, and it, it, she referred to it as the uh, what what was it the oh yeah the Whitley Strieber train wreck. And, you know, it's actually not that bad. I mean, I, I'm doing fine with my books online and uh, self-publishing them. I'm getting plenty of sales. So Why I would they really say that, though? Weren't, had, hadn't you been selling well up to then, or had it just been going down for a while? It had been going down not for a while, but for a long time. I mean, they're, they're, they're talking. They're not just – they don't like me much. But if I was selling, they would like me fine. That Publishers are like that. Oh, yes. Well, most but, people are like that. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> now that I'm not selling, there's no reason for them to hide their true feelings, which have been there all, all along. Oh, I see. I get it. Absolute contempt yeah. for me. But I don't really care. You know, I'm, I mean, I have what I regard as one of the most, most wonderful and extraordinary lives anyone's ever lived in, 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 in history. I'm living it. I'm actually living this life. I'm in contact with another level of reality and probably people from another planet. And I think that's extraordinary. I just really do. And, you know, people tell, oh, he's in league with demons. He's this, he's that. And yet, you know, I get up in the morning, I have my breakfast, I live through my day, I do my work. I experience the visitors at night, every night. And nobody's eating me or dragging me off to hell or anything like that. It's a, it's an absolutely enriching learning experience. Anyway, right back while to the I implant. was right. What? Yeah. While I was writing this book, it, it's a, and I didn't know it at the time, but I think I was influenced to do it because it was practice for you learning to use the implant. It was literally practice. Mm. And I was sitting in the bathroom one day, I was actually standing in the bathroom, and I noticed some movement in my left eye, my right, yeah, my right eye. And I was, you know, closed the left eye and was kind of peering at the white bathroom wall, and I could see something moving in my eye. I mean, something flashing along. It wasn't like an insect or anything. And so I was looking against, and I realized, my God, there's a little neatly formed slit in the eye of oblong slit in the in the in the middle of my field of vision and there are letters racing through it like letters in a 
like someone's typing very fast. Mm-hmm. I, I was astonished. I'm looking at this and trying to make out what it says. And I can see little flashes of words and, you know, and I, I can't quite make out what it says. And then I think to myself, you know, the implant had been kind of going on and off. When it goes on, it, I guess it's transmitting. My ear gets hot. And so it was kind of had been going on and off for a week, couple weeks. And I began to learn to use the thing for research in this book. And I, people who write, it's called In Hitler's House by Jonathan White Lane. I didn't publish it under my own name because one thing the publishers were right about is that I can't publish historical novels under my own name and also UFO books, nonfiction. It's just going to be too confusing. So anyway, I am working on the book and seeing these letters pass. And I've noticed that the book is just flowing, and it's a it's a faux memoir, it's, so it has to be filled with verisimilitude. You have to have the impression that it was written by somebody who was completely at ease it, it, with writing about that era because they were there. Right. And what I, was that? No, what was that noise? It was my— it was- that sounded I, like some someone clearing their throat. Wasn't me. <laughs> well, let's go on with the interview before we're both killed. Okay. <laughs> so what I was asking about was the functionality of it and um, how it appeared to you. And you were in the middle of describing when you had first seen it in the bathroom and saw the yeah. words going by. Right. So what was happening then was I was basically, I was looking at this thing and I was amazed at what I was seeing because this was this was a product of technology. This was not a hallucination or or anything like that. This was something that was being done. And I was trying to read the words, but they were going past too fast. And at some point during that period, I noticed that my writing was far better <laughs> than it has been. And, and, and in fact, it was so vivid and the verisimilitude was astonishing. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, this was some months later, I'm r- rushing ahead a bit here, that something had changed in this thing. This was when I first saw the letters, I, I, I was not aware of any change. But then there was a dramatic change. And I became a better writer, a very much of a better writer. And I was quite amazed by this because, you know, everyone who writes wants to be a good writer. And you want to be, and I thought my, I'm writing my best novel, darn it. And it's a, it's a, uh, historical that I almost certainly can't sell. And so I asked the thing, who are you? Because I just had the sense that. Uh, it, it was something had changed in the thing. And I was walking across the street, coming back from the coffee bar across the street with coffee in my hand. It was a very bright, sunny day, and I could see the letters flashing past. And all of a sudden, they slowed down. Mm-hmm. And very clearly, they moved past in my eye, easy to see. 
the words, it's me, Anne. And that was the beginning of my suspicion that I was not being, this was nothing to do with aliens, that this was the, this was some kind of a link to the dead. And there was another level of it that what I would be, if what I would, I would ask it questions and there would be synchronicities that occurred and the questions would be answered in the most unexpected possible ways. Uh, the one that I've mentioned is before is the illustration is I needed, I felt I needed to know what kind of toothpaste Hitler used because <laughs> he brushed his teeth four times a day. Uh, the guy stank mm-hmm. and his breath was horrible. Yeah. All the and drugs he, and everything going through him. I'm sure. Oh, didn't God know. only knows what it was, but, uh, but he, he stank and his breath was horrible and he was extremely sensitive about it all of his life. Mm-hmm. And so he was, he would brush his teeth four times a day and I needed to know more about that, all of that. And so I, I asked the implant, I just sat there in one of the meditation sessions and I asked out loud, what kind of toothpaste did Hitler use? <laughs> and you'd think that you would never, that would, the next day I'm looking on Google and suddenly I'm in the German version of Google. I'm looking for Hitler's toothpaste, actually. Yeah. I'm in the German version of Google, and it normally doesn't change you from one language to another. Just uh, when you're, I've been putting it in English, not right. in German. Yeah. And suddenly I'm on, and I see that what I, where I am is on a page that shows, a, 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 it turns out to be a page of a book that was written by one of Hitler's valets. Right. In German. Mm-hmm. And so I can't read a word of German, but I can tell it as I use the translator and I can see it's a book by about uh, Hitler by Hitler's valet. And it's for sale. It's not something that you can uh, you can't look at it online, in other words. So I buy a copy from Germany. Yeah. And it comes in a week or so, a couple weeks, maybe. And. I looked through it. It's all in German. That night, I happened to go to a meeting in which there is a lady with a German accent. <laughs> and I say to her, uh, could you translate a, something for me in German, a book, a little book I've got? She said, sure, bring it next week. And I br- bring it next week. And what do you know? In it is a detailed descrip- description of all of Hitler's personal habits, including the, the toothpaste he used. <laughs> That's and and that was you would think oh well it was just a lucky coincidence but that's only one of twenty five or thirty things that that happened that way during the writing of that particular book and more happened uh, during the writing of this book mm-hmm. at one point in this book I said to the implant I need to know I want you to tell me about something would is useful and important to my book that I know nothing whatsoever about. And that's how in the book I describe this experience of being led to the fine structure constant, which is a very important part of the book as it turns out. What is the fine structure constant that, that, uh, that, uh, fraction. The fraction is one, one thirty seventh, And it is a, it is a, a measurement 
of the distance between two lines, I believe, in the spectrograph of the uh, two spectrographic lines in um, is Hy- it the heat? I think you said it was it, a hydrogen atom. Hi- hydrogen, yeah, it's hydrogen. And the thing that's so amazing about the fine structure constant is it's a pure number. It's one one thirty seventh in any numerical system you choose. It's the same. But the most peculiar thing about it is all of the other constants in nature in, that we've discovered have a rationale behind them. They must be what they are because of the forces involved, mm-hmm. like the Planck constant and so forth. Right. But the fine structure constant is entirely arbitrary. There's no apparent reason. It's one one thirty seventh. It could be anything. And it drove, it's driven more than one physicist nuts. It drove the physicist Wolfgang Pauli absolutely nuts <laughs> because he couldn't find a reason for it. He, he discovered it, but he couldn't find a reason. Why is it like this? It's as if God said, oh, this is nice. I'll, I'll use this one. <laughs> but that's not supposed to be the way things work. Things, it's all, there's cause and effect in this universe, but not where the fine structure constants is concerned. Mm-hmm. It's just there. Yep. So he ended up getting friendly with uh, the uh, psychiatrist Carl Jung, who kind of went off into the mystical world, and and they had a wonderful correspondence, and it made a, uh, a it made a wonderful part of my book, and it, it really added tremendously to the to the book, and that's all comes comes from the implant. Yeah, because most people get what they say is an implant, and they they get nothing except that it's a lump, and they don't like it. Um, for well, you, yeah, it seems like gonna... it developed into something else. Well, I'm I'm not gonna. I got an implant. I saw the people put who put it in. It was there, mm-hmm. and at first I was berserk. I mean, you know. Yeah, you describe I, it. I, in I the was book. ready to cut my ear off the next morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Anne was. You know, she was much calmer about it. And I would say, you know, it's not in your ear, honey. <laughs> and I, just, I, said, I, I feel like I'm being watched. And she said, who's going to watch you going down to the grocery store? Who cares? Only I care. And I send you down to the grocery store to get a bag of flour. You come back two, two hours later with an armload of books, <laughs> which, which is what, hap- what actually happened a couple of times. And she would, when we finally had cell phones, I would, she would send me out to, to shop. And then 15 minutes later, she would call me and say, where are you? (laughs) And I would say, I'm in the grocery store. She said, do you know what you're buying? And I would say, well, actually I was just going to call you because I, I apparently left the shopping list at home. She said, no, you didn't. You didn't write the shopping list down at all. And here's what you need to get. And so it was easier then, but in any case, yeah. So, Anne basically said, they're not tracking you. Nobody cares that you're going down to the store or anything and anything. There's nothing in your life that, that you would want to hide. And it was true. I mean, I, I'm a very plain guy and then, you know, I'm as sort of colorless as I seem to a lot of people, I think. <laughs> but anyway, um, Apart from so the I obvious. down about that, but I was still extremely interested in what in the hell is it there for? 
Mm-hmm. And then the ear, every once in a while, the ear would get hot and I would hear this noise and I would, oh my God, it's, it's on. And I said, Annie, my ear is hot. She said, it's bright red. Your ear is bright red, your whole ear. Mm-hmm. Then that went on for a few years and we went down to, moved down to Texas and I met Bill Mallow, the head of material science at Southwest Research in San Antonio And one day we're in his lab and we've been studying implants that Roger Lear, the implant pioneer doctor out here in L.A., had been taking out of people and sending to us. Right. And so we are having a lot of fun because, you know, these were they weren't unusual, but there were there were things about them that were really very unusual, like they were encased. They would send these. They were encapsulated in an epidermis. Not, uh, and that's impossible because you can't have the body can't generate epidermis inside muscle tissue. It doesn't have the genetic encoding to do yeah. that. It's your, it's so your this skin. Was not a natural basically. inclusion in the body. There's no question about it. Yeah. But what did it do? Because we just were seeing these little pieces of meteoric iron that seemed completely unremarkable. Um, one of them had been, uh, sending out a low level FM signal and we, decided to put it under x-ray diffraction in hopes of looking, see if we could see the x-rays could see some kind of crystalline structure. Yeah. And as soon as the first pass happened, it became x-ray invisible and stayed x-ray invisible. We never were able to get another x-ray bounce back off of it at all. And yet when we put it back in the scanning electron microscope, it was still exactly the same composition as before. Now that's, mm-hmm. Pretty impressive technology, whatever that did that. Yeah. Uh, but, but in any case. Wonder why people aren't studying those things now with the same relish that they're studying possible, you know, metamaterials. That's a metamaterial as you describe it. Yeah, I know. But Roger died and I guess his family probably threw the implants out. I, I don't, we're not, I'm not in touch with them. They did not like his UFO work and, uh, that happens so often. That's too bad. Yeah, and I think they just tossed them. I've got some of the uh, magnesium bismuth that that Linda Howe sold to TSA for thirty five thousand dollars. I've also got a piece of it, and we did study it and found the same conclu- came to the same conclusions that have been come to brought to before with this, and that is that it's an impossible structure. It's it, it, layerings of bismuth and magnesium. And there's nothing adhering them together. They're not held together. There's empty space between the layers. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's really fascinating. But uh, hmm. no one's paying me any $35,000. <laughs> I don't you, think uh, I you gotta, believe You got to put uh, out ads for it, Whitley. <laughs> no, what's his name? Um, DeLong won't even talk to me. Mm. And his friend Peter or my friend Peter Levin and my friend of 20 years I'm looking down here at a, um, a, a on, on my email records just here. There's 700 and plus emails between me and Peter Levend over the past 15 years mm. since I started this system, mm-hmm. and he won't talk to me anymore either. He 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 is silent, and I think that a lot of us are experiencing this, and I think somewhere in CIA security. There's a boom being dropped, and there are people on one side of that fence and people on the other side of the fence. And you can be sure 
whenever there's a fence and there are bureaucrats involved, Whitley is definitely on the other side. <laughs> Always. Because I'm not understood. I'm out of control as far as they're concerned. I'm not on the reservation. Uh, I am a rogue player. But there is a deeper level of this, even inside the government, that, that CIA and all of the TTSA-level people know nothing about. And in that level, I am no rogue player, thank, thankfully. So in any case, to get back to the implant, I'm sitting in I Bill's office. I won't dig. <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting in Bill's office, Bill Nala's office, and we're talking about some of the – some of the re results that we've just gotten them, some implant we were working on. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I feel my ear getting really hot. And I say, Bill, I think the implants, my implants just turned on. He said, Oh my God, your ear is bright red. I said, Bill, it's on. And they had a very sophisticated signals acquisition lab there. Yep. We run over, they turn, get the lab fired up, the signals unit fired up. I'm sitting in there. They pick up a signal. Then they tell me they can't tell me what the signal is because it's classified. The lab's classified. Hmm. 20 years later, I'm at a literary festival or some, of some kind in San Antonio. And one of the participants comes up to me in a crowd and says, Mr. Strieber, I just want to tell you that I was involved in that signals work that was done on your implant. And it is remains the most unusual signal that has ever been picked up in our lab or as far as we know anywhere. And it's still deeply classified. He turned around and walked away. Hmm. And he just wanted me to know that it was a kind thing to do. So it does. It hasn't turned on in oh, six months or so. But receiving, it does not heat up only sending only when it's transmitting does it heat up and i can't say that i know i can cannot identify times that it transmits except one time one period i've two times when i've been in a in an art gallery where there were lots and lots of photographs or paintings of grays it has turned on um and but aside from that there's no real I can't tell any particular particular reason. Hmm. I wonder so, if that happens to do with what you're thinking or what you're seeing or both or who I knows. I have no idea. Hmm. Oh, no. There was a time that I did identify the reason. I was rehearsing a speech in front of a relative who is also a close encounter witness. Oh, this and, is in the book, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I uh, uh, it turned on while I was rehearsing the speech. So, and she said, my God, your ear is turned bright red. <laughs> I said, yeah, I don't think you're my only audience here. Yeah. So anyway, this is, this is kind of where it is and where things are going. And, you know, over the, it, since, since September and October of 2015, when the visitors started waking me up at three o'clock in the morning, uh, as they had done very briefly uh, about 10 years before few, for a few days, a few weeks, mm -hmm. um, I have been in this and working on the book intensively. And it has been the strangest, most intense, scariest, and most wonderful experience of my life. 
And as you can know from reading the book, there's scary stuff involved in this thing. It's not all sweetness and light. Yeah, well, that's another question. There is the impetus in the book that you try to put on people reading it, saying that more people will be doing this. Now, do you think that anybody can do this, uh, get get some sort of contact, or only certain people and in, in, in different ways? Because we don't know why one person is involved and another isn't, or or put another way, why one person is aware of their involvement and another isn't. I can't answer the question. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I can't say, oh, well, you have to be of a certain intelligence level or a certain blood type or this or that or some stuff like that. I have no idea, frankly. I do know this, and this is sort of just this is a very subjective thing. When I've gotten together with a lot of people who were all close encounter witnesses, two things happen. One is they, they have a lot of trouble separating and going their separate ways because we're drawn to each other. Right. And two is they're mostly very mild, gentle people. And in other words, you don't, there's not any, you're not going to find any real hostile, uh, real real vicious sort of troll-like people in these groups, I don't think. At least I've never seen that. And so the result of this, and I think the reason is, the visitors, when they're in physical form, are very fragile. They're very fragile. And if you look in my book, I, I quote some passages and describe some things from Kathleen Martin's recent book, How to Handle Contact, I think it's called. Uh, and it's a that uh, what happened when a guy did shoot one of them, and it was not good. It's not an advisable tactic, no question about that. And uh, so you have to be really careful, really careful mm -hmm. in dealing with them in two at two levels. One is if they're going to come close to you physically. You can't make sudden moves, and you certainly can't be violent. But the thing is, they are so intimidating. These little beings are unbelievably intimidating. You, you experience a sense of ego death. It's much more intense than mere fear of death. It's much more frightening than standing uh, in, front of, in front of a loaded gun in the hand of a schizophrenic paranoid, I can <laughs> tell you. Uh, and you have to be able to live with that. And I think they probably seek out people who can, can handle them basically can handle the experience. And you know, and then they, there was also me and I'm a, an experiment because I'm, I'm the exemplary version of a person who is so fantastically bad at handling this <laughs> that they, they can, identify every single possible thing that can go wrong by simply dealing, trying to deal with me. Mm -hmm. As far as you know, what did they do before us? Before there were people here, were they even around or does time make no difference to them? You know, I have a lot of thoughts about what they are. And I'm not sure that, they are anything outside of our consciousness. Uh, 
I'm not sure that the real question isn't what are they, but what are we? And th- that might be the better question as, mm, I, mm-hmm. as I go into in the book. And of course, it's, it's not a, people want to sit back and put their feet up and read a book about scary aliens, preferably the guy went to Mars and lived with the aliens for 17 years or something and <laughs> uh, or went to the planet Serpo, I think it was called. Oh yeah, this, this was this is aliens. yeah exactly. This All isn't those, an, it's not an easy book, which is why I enjoy it. It's not an easy book. No, it's it's a book that it's a book that's intended to it, it give the reader ideas about contact, and it's for a certain level of mind. I mean, you can't come to this. I don't think with you know unless you're somewhat at least somewhat educated and uh, somewhat open to new ideas. Yeah, and then maybe a little bit um, conversant with, one, uh, the the visitor you know, story experience and your literature, and maybe even spiritual education and maybe a scientific literacy, too. Yeah. I think, to me, the main thing that this is about is something most of us don't really believe in, the soul. We have to, to give you an idea. Yeah, that was this, a whole other area that we were going to talk about. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, to give you an idea of what I mean by this, this aspect of presence is huge, complicated, multifaceted, much, much more complex than the physical aspect of the human being. But we know so little about it and are so little conscious of it that at least in English, we only have one word for it, soul. And that's like having one word for all of the chemicals or all of the elements in the, in the periodic table. Uh, you just describe as one word with one word rocks. Yeah. Dean Radin once said that uh, describing what he was working on was like using a sledgehammer to kill a fly. Well, exactly. I mean, the soul, the word soul, but anyway, this is the word we have. And I, I don't go into it too deeply in the book. I just break it down into three basic elements and there's much more to it than that. The physical body, the second body or electronic body, electric body and the soul itself, which the electric body is to which the electric body is feeding experience. And what it's basically doing is taking experience that's brought in by the senses raising its vibration by putting it into the, into the nervous system and then the soul can perceive it and absorb it. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're living for. And, and there's many more shadings of, of that many more subtle aspects of that, of like of how experience flows into the second body from the first through the spine and uh, what, the chakras are all about and in the book i point out that the egyptians called them taniter and we now call it tantra right but scholars say there's no connection between the egyptian book of the dead of 4500 years ago and tantra which was uh emerged in the sixth century a.d or something like that in india yeah in india but the truth is there's a deep connection they're the same thing you can read about the first, the first, the oldest religious text we have 
is the pure text of the the pyramid text in the pyramid of Unas, and a big part of that text describes the seven serpents that are uh, circling, seven small serpents that are circling the great serpent of the spine. Now, to me, that those are chakras, mm-hmm. and that they are drawing the energy of experience into the spine where it is turned into light. And when it is turned into light, it feeds the soul. Yeah. You do talk about light and how that is uh, connected with the, with aspects of the soul. And also your uh, quote, I think you talked about it in our last uh, interview about that. uh, When you were meditating, you said that the visitors, and I think you also say in this book, as well as the dead, see that as a light. Yeah. They see your, second body glowing because of the fact that your attention has been added to it. And that makes you more conscious Mm. that makes you, and makes you more visible. It, it makes you literally brighter and, uh, and they can see that. And when they see that, they like Annie said, and after she died, when I, it was, I, I was at a conference in Nashville with William Henry and Claire Henry. And I asked Annie, uh, uh, I mean, a lady came up to me and said, Mr. Strieber, this most incredible thing happened to me. And I'm so embarrassed to tell you this. I don't know what to say. And I said, well, look, you can't, you cannot <laughs> say something to me. It's too strange for me to believe or at least to entertain what happened. Yeah. He said, well, I heard your wife's voice in my ears say very clearly, tell Whitley, I can see him when he's in the chair. And that was, and then I remembered back. 25 years ago, at least when I had a brief exchange with the visitors, that was sort of channeled slash sort of voice like, but not really voice, uh, in which I asked one of the questions I asked them was, why did you come here? And the answer was, we saw a glow. And at, at the time I thought oh, I must've seen the glows of cities and stuff. But at that moment I suddenly realized, no, they didn't. They saw the glow of second body when the attention was placed on it. And then I understood why Annie had said what she said. And since then, I have been meditating in that exact spot night after night after night. I never would miss a night, never, Mm -hmm. because I know she can see me and come to me and be with me when I do that. And I really crave that, of course. Of course. Yeah. Who wouldn't? You know, I'm still married. I'm wearing both rings. We, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we're two people we're sharing a body right now we don't we only have one body left and that's my body and so that's where i wear two rings i'm i'm annie's body and i'm my body what happens after your body isn't here well and obviously we don't have any bodies anymore no i, I mean know. because maybe, the, maybe we reincarnate that. and maybe we don't i have yeah. no idea mm. i i wouldn't think try to think that far ahead um Whatever happens will happen, though, I can assure you of that. <laughs> yeah, you do talk a little bit about in the book, but not as regards to you. Uh, that one man you said you saw coming out of a um, operating or a, at the hospital, and you said, well, and you were with Ann, and you said, well, oh, yeah. he died, and then you said you flashed on a, a scene of, of, of a child in India. Yeah, well, that was a, those were the soul texts. These, this, I think these little dark blue figures that I call kobolds in the book after the medieval uh, name for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were seen a lot in mines and they're dark cobalt colored. 
I think that they are human. I think they are another another aspect of the human species, a la caterpillars and butterflies. And, you know, we're the caterpillars, I would think, and they're the butterflies. And it's the opposite of, of caterpillars and butterflies because in, in, in the caterpillar-butterfly mix, the butterfly at least is beautiful. But I've seen some of these guys in the flesh, and let me assure you, they're not like butterflies. <laughs> um, and But we aren't either. I mean, you know, we're definitely the caterpillars. We're eating this planet up, just gobbling it up at this point. So uh, we have a – in any case, I think that they control and manage the movement of souls – and what I saw is I see the dead fairly often. I'm, I'm not saying I see him every day like some like a psychic might. But um, I see him fairly often. And I was in a hospital waiting room with some friends who were basically losing their father and husband. And um, Danny was with me. And all of a sudden I saw him walk up. He was being he – was, it was an emergency heart surgery. And he was not expected to live through it. All of a sudden, I see him walking out of the operating room. And I immediately said to Anna, he just died. And I'm going to say his name. And because I see him standing right over there looking at us. And then a couple minutes, not even two minutes later, the surgeon comes out. And he's to the, to the wife and he says, ma'am, I'm sorry to say he's died. And between the two times, the, between the time he walked out and the surgeon came out in my mind's eye. I saw these dark blue figures pick him up and put him into a body of a baby in somewhere in the, in, in, in like on the Indian subcontinent somewhere is what the people looked like. And the baby went berserk of course, because he was still conscious of who he was, but he could no longer express himself in any way except by the cries of this, of this baby. And I think that souls are much more interchangeable than we realize, that they come and go in bodies. And in this case, he was placed in that body for, for the reason that he had had some very lovely children who were fine credits to the world that they live in. But he himself was a very bad guy. So he wasn't bad enough to just let drop. Uh, but uh, he also wasn't good enough to let run free. When you talk about the visitor experience with you and other people, and that we're talking about basically an English-speaking North American culture, have you seen this manifesting in other cultures and other countries, and if so, how? I think it's interpreted differently in other cultures. Uh, I think, for example, I'm understanding that in Morocco, the jinn are suddenly just everywhere. People are seeing them all over the place. Mm. Um, and But that's how they see this. Right. Uh, Native Americans see it quite differently from us, but it's a, it's a, it's a universal phenomenon, really. Um, I don't think, and you know, people see UFOs all over the world too. Right. So yeah, I think it's a definitely a worldwide phenomenon, but there are reasons that, let me, this isn't, I don't think this is, I, I, I touch on this in the book, but. I understand that the reason that certain countries are more involved than others, like Canada, the United States, and Australia are too, 
one is three rather one is there's a very rich genetic mix two is the people are free and they have their souls are free and that makes them more interesting to the visitors in the first place ah. and number three is that they do not have a lot of violent history and they're they can find a lot of beings in this in these places in these countries who have never been treated in a violent way they because a lot of people in these countries have never been through wars or anything like that and they and they also a lot of people don't have ancestors who were treated violently and so there's not a lot of violence in in there imprinted in them and this is why the visitors are more interested in them. These are the three reasons. Um, they're not so common. They don't go so commonly to Europe, of course, because there's just been a terrible series of wars there. And all of these people down the generations will be scarred from those wars for many generations. But in the United States, actually the percentage of people who fought in the first and second world wars Korea and uh, uh, Vietnam and Iraq is infinitesimal compared to the whole population. So there's not a lot of damage there. They're, they're pretty intact. And that's these are the reasons they concentrate on these particular countries. Mm -hmm. Another thing you come up, uh, uh, discuss in the book, is the idea that People's, you know, there's some people that say the visitors are all evil and they're satanic or whatever you want to call it, demons. And other people say they're wonderful, they're they're all sweetness and light, new agey. But uh, you make the point, which uh, I totally agree with, that um, whatever this is, it reflects both sides of that and everything in between, a whole... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if this is happening to people... um what kind of a discernment can they develop to determine which ones are good and which are not? I guess it'd be pretty easy if they make you feel bad and scared all the time and nothing comes out of it. They're probably bad. <laughs> no, that that's, it's not that easy at all. Hmm. Not at all. Uh, I have only known one or two visitors and they were very humanoid, human looking who I felt comfortable around. The rest of them, I feel, to one degree or another, disquieted by or extremely uncomfortable around. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean they are evil at all. What it means is I have to keep plugging away, and so do they, in order to make the relationship work through the haze of fear. Mm -hmm. This is what I learned starting on that night I talked about early on when I got the gash. It's not about suppressing the fear or quelling it. It's about accepting that it's there and living past it mm. and just knowing that whenever they show up, it's going to be a scary experience because the very nature of someone looking at you from outside of time, they must be looking at your whole lifespan, including your death. And you feel that in there. That's where their eyes are so terrifying. You absolutely do feel that when you're face to face with them. But uh, I, I think that the uh, that the well, we're in a good example. We're one species. It, just a few years ago, Gandhi and Hitler 
were living at the same time in history. The SS was was murdering people horribly at a, at, at a time when all over the planet there were hundreds of thousands of other people doing everything they could to fulfill their moral duty to help others. Mm-hmm. And you see the see and 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 say we turn the table. Say this is about aliens, which I would never discount because it may be in part or even in whole about aliens. Yeah. Uh, but say we were the aliens and we we had developed a way of moving to another planet back and forth relatively easily. Anyone could go if they wanted to. There were no laws stopping you. So everyone goes, tourists go, <laughs> crazy people go, religious missionaries go, scientists go. And what do you end up seeing? You see people being abducted and uh, their tissue samples taken. You see babies being made in artificial wombs so that they can be studied. You see all kinds of things like that. Because they, these things, they can, they can, they can do these things, and in order to understand us and to understand what we are, they have to, including making the hybrids. Because we would certainly consider breeding these beings in captivity in order to understand them better. We would certainly consider it, and we might not think of them in the same way as we think of ourselves at all. They may be the most brilliant creatures in the universe, but we might not be able to notice that. So I think that the picture that presents itself when you kind of turn the tables looks very much like what we're experiencing right now here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you once told me that the, and I don't know if this is in the book or not, it might be, you said that from your point of view, the visitors know what's at the end of time. They're not stuck in time, and they relish experiencing our ignorance of what happens in future time. Could you elaborate there, on that? The, yes. This is an absolutely core reality, I think. They are outside of time looking in, and they are literally like the dead. They are dead because you're dead if you're outside of time looking in. You have no ability anymore to be surprised or to savor the sweetness of life. And they have a great deal of knowledge or they wouldn't be living the way they do. We have this extraordinary experience of living in the time stream and not knowing what's ahead. Uh, They see the universe as a coffin. We see it as Star Trek. They want to join us on the enterprise and join us in our adventure and taste also of this adventure. This is why they're here. There is the greatest and most extraordinary trade in the history of mankind being born here. They are ready to share their knowledge with us and in return to let them participate in our lives as not as like partners hand in hand, but literally to meld with us and become part of us so that they can have the same experiences of, uh, of newness that are so ordinary to us. We don't even think about them. Mm -hmm. So this extraordinary trade is what's on offer. 
And I do think that some of them from time to time have jumped the gun and have been and have used very violent means to extract souls from people and presumably to consume their experiences. But I don't think everyone wants to do that. And I think that once this trade is in operation, we're going to become extraordinarily knowledgeable and, because we're going to be given a lot of gifts. And they're going to be really happy because they have the chance to experience life again. Because I can assure you from just the few minutes of living the way they live that I was shown in demonstration, it's not like being alive at all not at all it's much more like being in an empty house where nothing important or significant can ever happen and you can't get out do you think that that's um hmm, i'm trying to f phrase this properly um do you think that they discovered that when they discovered that people existed that were having these incarnate experiences and then slowly realized, hey, wait a second, there's another way to, I don't know, exist? I don't know. I can't answer that. It would be pure speculation. But I, and I, I, yeah, would and I'm put talking about cause them. and effect and time and stuff, which doesn't right. enter I would here. Put, I would put nothing past them. I would even say that. It's perfectly possible that they created us in order to have this experience with us. <laughs> yeah, that's the old idea. You know, of, I wouldn't be at of, all surprised. Yeah, of God creating the universe. Us genetically and in, in, over the course of history. Because, I mean, look at everything else on this darn planet. All the other creatures running around have fur. They don't need clothes. Uh, they, they can't see like we can see. They don't have anything even close to our minds. The difference between a human mind and the mind of the next smartest creature on Earth is almost inf infinite. It's vast. Mm -hmm. How would that happen? I mean, where did we come from? And why would we be end why would we end up with no hair and no fur? Why would our genitals be right in front where all of the other primates don't have that? Why would we have no seasonality when every other mammal has seasonality? Right. Uh, we are screw like crazed weasels for God's sakes. And weasels are not nearly as crazed as we are. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are incredibly fecund. Our women are always fertile. We are pulled. Children are pouring out of us and they're all extraordinarily brilliant. I think somebody did that. I'll be frank with you. I don't think it's an accident and I don't think it's just evolutionary. And we also seem to walk out of the woods one day uh, just like this. There, there's a gap between Cro-Magnon man and earlier forms that has never been filled. Right, the uh, the missing link, which is apparently still missing. Well, no, I'm, I'm not actually talking about that. Yeah, it is a missing link, but the, the earlier missing link is sort of found. It's Lucy. But this is a real missing link because the the gulf between Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon is amazing. Mm. Everything about them is different. Cro-Magnon is vastly more advanced creature. But where did he come from? 
where's the where the, where are the ones in between? You say maybe the Denisovians, but the Denisovians were not not much more advanced than than um, uh, the Neanderthals. So that's that's probably a dead end. Right. There is stuff in the book that comes right up to the last month. So this yeah. book, yeah, this book was produced and and put out. I mean, you included things right in the last month, which I thought was kind of amazing and great. Well, uh, I, I you know I'm publishing it myself through my own company because I have to. Yeah, there no way were the visitors willing to. There was no way I was going to send this to a publisher because they knew it would probably, despite my sales, it's a good book, and they probably knew it would or feared that it would be bought and it would be put off for a year while they slowly went through their publisher thing. And they are urgent about this book. This has got to be out there because, and I'll tell you why they keep saying that there's going to be a major disruption on this planet. And I'm quoting, it will come upon them unaware. And I don't know what it is. And I'll tell you something else. I don't think they know what it is either. They just know that it's going to happen. And so they want, us to be able to communicate with them so that when this begins to unfold, I think they're probably going to manifest very openly and apparently, and the book will be a foundation for communicating with them. Because they have, because of what you've said, uh, according to your narrative about it is what you've, what you've said is that if they lose us, that's it. There, I think there, yeah. there will be no way to access this information that you're talking about, about life and about not experiencing time or being outside of time, etc. They won't be able to experience life in the time stream without us. And if they did design us, this we may be it. We may be the triumph of their effort. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. Because it could be that this is the only game in town. And if it is, boy, do they not want to lose us. But they're in a quandary. <laughs> Because if they come too close to us, then we become supplicants because, you know, we, and we cease to right. innovate. Yeah, you talk and about that. If, yeah, I talk In about that. If we cease to innovate, then we're useless to them. It's a waste. So they have to play a very careful game here of letting us, letting themselves be exposed to us so that we know they're there, but not just walking into the room and sitting down and saying, (laughs) okay, let's talk Turkey. That's never going to happen because they want something here that we cannot, that they can't get if we know them too intimately. Yeah. So this entire thing is just oblique and uh, just different shades and extensions of obliqueness, which makes it so much more difficult. And also so much more fun, at least to somebody like me who likes hard problems. (laughs) I will ask you one more thing. Has there been any reaction since this book was released, what, two weeks ago? Yeah, on the 15th, just Uh a few days ago. Yeah. Has there been any reaction, any visitor reaction, or just have they been been silent since then? Uh, They're not silent. That's not not what they are. Okay. I'm getting letters from people who are having contact experiences because of the book, which is I expected. Mm -hmm. And that's happening. They told me that would happen. And and, uh, that, that is happening. And interestingly enough, one of the things I, I don't talk too much about the, the, the details of these experiences 
the reason being that they want each person to build their own relationship. They want this to be as diverse as possible. Mm-hmm. But there is something that happens that one of the only things I have of them is, is a size that I recorded quite accidentally one time. And this sigh is the sound they make when they're concluding uh, uh, something. And the, the, the I just got a letter to yesterday from a lady who had had they had some kind of very oblique and strange encounter that she thought was related to the reading of the book, which it was. And then her husband had heard this sigh, this quite loud, actually, in her case, it's very soft, generally in mine, uh, when he was walking out of the bathroom upstairs when she was downstairs. And I, I realized that they had been in the house and that was the sign that they had concluded what they were doing. Mm. <laughs> so that's going to happen more, I hope. And, you know, and we hopefully the flow of information between us will improve because I'm, I suspect that there will be more than one scientist who reads about, uh, Carrie Mollis and Ed Brel Bruno and thinks to themselves, well, you know, my community might laugh at this but nobody can stop me from sitting down and doing the sensing exercise and seeing if I can get in contact on my own. And I don't have to tell anybody where my knowledge is coming from. That's right. I mean, I, I get the feeling reading Diana's book that, um, well, I mean, I think she even intimates this. This happens a lot more normally or more frequently than people might want to think. To um, scientists who are behind the scenes. Right, exactly. We need people who are in the front, uh, who are not behind the wall of classification because there are a lot of geniuses back there, but they're terribly hamstrung by the fact that they like can't even many of them can't even talk to each other uh, about their work, even though they're working on things that are similar because of the strict need to know rules Mm -hmm. that are so impossible to figure out. You don't know back behind that curtain, whether the person you're talking to does need to know what you're talking, what you know, unless he's in the group you're actually in and you already know what he knows. And therefore cross fertilization is a nightmare. Yeah. I know a lot about that and it's a, it's real hard. We need this out in the public space. I think that's sort of cracked recently with your work and Diana's and a few other people. And I'm kind of concentrating on, academics and scientists and people like that that are open to this and maybe have even had some sort of experience because I think that's where the this moves forward in a lot yeah, of Yeah, that's exactly where it moves forward. And we can gain from them. They've got a lot of very useful knowledge. And we can definitely gain from them. And they they will pay uh as long as we pay. They will make the trade. They're not going to just take. That's not how they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's probably because it's not how we are. And if they don't, if they don't partially play by our rules, nothing will happen. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I did remember that. Uh, I think we were talking a while back, and I said, "Did you realize that uh, the guy that invented the two hundred inch telescope, George Ellery Hale, um, said that gnomes or brownies or something came in in the middle of the night, 
in the early 20th century, I think he was doing this, and, and helped him with the design for the telescope. And other astronomers say, well, he went a little nuts then. That's just... <laughs> yeah, but that's not the case. Yeah. He, he was given that help. Yeah. And, you know, and people need to be able to, to talk about and write about where these ideas are coming from. And above all, to take the stance that's necessary to enable the visitors to enter their lives. And then there can be real interaction. Mm -hmm. Is there a better place to get the book than Amazon or is that the, just the best place to do it? Oh because no, it'll, it's on Amazon right now. It'll, it'll spread. It'll be on other places soon. Okay. I doubt I'll get into the bookstores, but, uh, I, unless it happens to become a bestseller, in which case I, I will, but You'll be able to get it. I think you can probably get the paperback on uh, Apple Books and on Barnes & Noble, too, at this point. Okay, Whitley, thank you so much for your time. I've, I've got 100 other questions, but the way the, way the, the conversation flowed was the way that uh, uh, it, it's gone, and that's the way I want it to be. I want it to sound like a nice conversation. So, Well, um, it was. It was a good conversation. It always is with you, Greg. You're, a, you're good at what you do, and I really very much appreciate and very much enjoy being with you. She was a visitor. 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 She was a visitor.
She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor.